Welcome to Another Way, the podcast of Equal Citizens. I'm Director and Chief Counsel Jason Harrow, and I'm joined today by Adam Eichen. Hey, Adam. Hey, Jason. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. You and I haven't been on the air in a couple of weeks just to kind of recap the state of politics, the state of the presidential race from a democracy reform point of view, which, of course, we talk about all the time on this podcast. We've had a bunch of great interviews, some of which you've done. Um, but it's time, I think, that we step back, Adam, don't you think, and, and sort of assess where we are, what is going on with the state of democracy reform in this race? What is going on with voting rights and money and politics reform and gerrymandering reform from a perspective? And we'll get back to our interviews with activists and politicians and the like soon enough. So that's what the format of this episode is. Uh, listeners may know they can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash equal citizens. Our homepage is equalcitizens.us slash another way. And you can also email us there. You can email us show suggestions. We like those. We pass them along to Larry Lessig. When he does episodes, we read them. You can also email us info at equalcitizens.us, all one word, and no.com. .us, folks, because, you know, we talk about American democracy reform. Maybe, Adam, we should we should have, like, uh, I don't know, maybe after this election, should we do like UK and, and do a, <laughs> a, a UK democracy reform? I confess I know nothing about what's going on in the democracy reform space, but perhaps there are lessons to learn. Okay, but so here's what's on the agenda today for us to talk about. So we've got a New Hampshire and Iowa recap. We want to recap sort of what happened there from a voting perspective. Some people may know that the vote didn't exactly go great in Iowa, right, Adam? But uh, we still want to talk about it. And we want to talk about what the candidates are talking about and what messages resonate from a democracy reform perspective and a corruption perspective. And then we want to have a new segment. Let, let's call it story time with Adam Eichen, because Adam, you were on the ground in New Hampshire for essentially a full week. So you've got some really interesting stories about how democracy is resonating uh, with with voters and and um, how it's affecting how people vote and what they vote on and what candidates they support. And then we're going to do a little project where we think about reforming the um, primaries, the early primaries in 2024 to make them more democratic, more representative of the American electorate and just an overall better race. I mean, we'll throw out a couple suggestions there, uh, you know, because obviously we know the DNC must be listening. The DNC commissioners, Adam, they must be listening here. We're going to go through some great options for 2024 if Tom Perez is listening. So, Tom, please, please listen all the way through. How, please, listen, don't, don't just end at story time with Adam Eichen. Listen all the way through. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I'll do a super quick recap, Adam, and then I'll throw it to you to, to kind of comment. Um, but as many know, uh, the Iowa caucuses occurred a couple of weeks ago, there was an absolute disaster with the way that the caucuses were counted. Um, we should note that the caucuses are not a primary. So people had to show up at 8pm in school gyms and firehouses and community uh, gatherings. So Adam will talk about the implications of that on democracy. Um, and it came with a semi inconclusive result. Um, Booty Gage and Bernie performed the best, depending on whether you want to count the first cut or the overall state delegate equivalents, which I still don't. What are they equivalent to? I actually don't know what state <laughs> delegate equivalent means, which, again, Adam, we talk about democracy. People in the democracy reform movement probably should know what an assessment metric is for counting votes. And yet we don't. So uh, let's put a flag in that for what that means. And of course, we didn't even get full results for like a week. The, they used this new app that was very poorly tested and inexpensive. And it ended up, I would say, like, you know, we have a report card for individual candidates. Adam, what what grade would you give on a report card from a democracy perspective to the Iowa caucuses? Without a doubt, an F. An F. 
Wow. An F. An absolute F. That's pretty bad. I don't know that we have the F minus designation, but yes, F minus is is probably appropriate as well. Definitely a failing grade. Uh, New Hampshire did better. New Hampshire did better on a democracy perspective. We still have some critiques with how it went, but uh, the election seemed to run smoothly. They have same-day voter registration, Adam, which you've got a story about, so enabled people to vote. They had a relatively robust voter turnout. They counted the ballots quickly and by all accounts accurately. You know, uh, again, Booty Gage and, and Bernie, along with Amy Klobuchar, performed well. Warren and, and Biden underperformed uh, relative to media expectations and perhaps relative to polls. And uh, that was the results. But the other results, of course, are not just the vote tallies, Adam. They are how many delegates. These are not state delegate equivalents. These are more easily understandable delegates to the Democratic Convention. And only the top three candidates are getting delegates. Uh, only Klobuchar, Buttigieg, and Bernie are getting delegates because there is a 15% threshold. And because there was no ranked choice voting, those voters who voted for Warren, for Biden, for Yang, all of those folks don't get a second choice. They don't get to choose among the top three vote getters. And so they their votes will translate into no delegates at all. So we should say pretty good for democracy. We like the same day registration. Um, we like the, you know, the enthusiasm that was up there. We like the well-run election and the security and the, and the fairness of the count. But we don't like the fact that only 70% of votes are going to matter. So Adam, before we throw it for open discussion, what's your quick grade there for the New Hampshire primary from a democracy perspective? I mean, they did, did an accurate count, so we have to give them credit for that. Uh, you know, I think that it went as well as it could outside of adopting, and we'll talk about this, ranked choice voting for the primary there, which is something that uh, you and I and Equal Citizens worked really hard a year ago uh, to get them to enact. But obviously, they chose not to do that. Uh, but all things considered, it did go well uh, in terms of an accurate count. So uh, may- maybe it's just maybe I'm feeling generous based on uh, just how bad Iowa did. Uh, but there's definitely room for improvement, whatever the grade we might want to assign to it is. Right. I, I think I'm going to give it a B minus. You know, I really think that this early in the process with this many candidates, I think it really is critical to use something like ranked choice voting to let th- both the vote from both the perspective of what the voters get to say and how they interact with the candidates, as well as a perspective of giving the race the kind of certainty and information that we want from an early primary, giving the Democratic Party the signals from what voters are feeling. And after all this, after having candidates camped out in New Hampshire for a year, right, to say you only get one choice, right? I mean, the analogy ranked choice voting advocates use all the time is food or drink, right? And it's kind of like they were having a year-long taste test with all kinds of, you know, wonderful food and drink and different cuisines and different kinds of beer and wine and spirits. And then they said, well, which one did you like the most? And there is value in saying which one we like the most, right? But if it turns out over the last year, some people really like the pizza that they were tasting and some people really like the pasta and some people really like, you know, the sushi, it it would at least be nice because there's going to be lots of other people who get this taste test, you know, over the next six months. And of course, we eventually want the folks in the party to sort of unify around a consensus option. It would be really nice to get that additional information and, and find 
out what did people really think, right? What did I'm, I'm not saying you have to send everyone a questionnaire, right? Like as if you just took a flight on Delta Airlines and they email you, like, what'd you think of the service? What'd you think of the food? That would probably be a little too much and a little too onerous. But I really, I, I think it's just a big loss. It's a big loss of information. It's a big loss of a chance for unity um, to, 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 to just let this information go by the wayside and, and give people one and only one vote. Um, you know, I, 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 it really is a shame that New Hampshire didn't adopt ranked choice voting this year. Maybe, maybe 2024, I guess, is all we'll, we'll, we'll say. So for that reason, I'm kind of giving it a B minus. So, so that's what happened in terms of the actual elections, right? Um, no evidence of like hacking or foreign interference or anything, but bad counting in Iowa, good counting in New Hampshire, but really missed opportunity on ranked choice voting. But Adam, we should go into where does this leave the candidates? from a democracy reform perspective, right? I mean, we've been grading the candidates and some of the candidates we've graded pretty highly, including Bernie, who we had an event with um, and and talked extensively about his democracy reform platform have uh, played very well. Other candidates who do have a robust democracy reform platform like Elizabeth Warren seem to be trending downward. And the one candidate who really has not endorsed uh, comprehensive reform and has not promised to push it and doesn't frequently talk about it, Joe Biden, um, has really underperformed expectations. So what do you make of all this? I mean, I, you know, Jason, I think that the issue of reform is salient for voters. I mean, I, I talked to a number of voters in New Hampshire. Uh, it's, it's clear that the issue of uh, big money influence, voter suppression. I mean, these are all issues that people understand. Uh, whether or not they're making that their first issue, like we are trying to get candidates to say uh, on public record, is, is a different story. Uh, it's not super clear to me that that voters are necessarily saying that their number one issue is is democracy reform, which Jason makes total sense to me. I mean, if you're struggling with health care bills, it makes sense that you'd want health care reform if that's your number one issue. Or if you're scared about climate change, uh, it totally makes sense that you would want the candidate that is pushing the most aggressive climate change legislation uh, you know, in the race. That makes total sense to me. What, what we need to do, and I think what candidates need to do, is really do more work to integrate their policy platforms into a message of why democracy reform is necessary, to kind of tie the whole theory of change together. Um, because I, I do think a lot of voters are uh, skeptical about what can get done in, in Congress, or what can get done even if a certain candidate is elected. And so to kind of you know, in, in my view, at least, to make that theory of change, to give voters more of a sense, more confidence that when they vote for a presidential candidate, that candidate will actually be able to follow through with their their promises. Talking about democracy reform and the need for democracy reform and integrating that into the theory of how, you know, I, the candidate, is going to get something done uh, is pretty clear. And so, you know, so it's, a, it's good and bad news from, from the ground in New Hampshire. In other words, that the issue of reform is salient, uh, but it's not necessarily on everyone's, on, you know, everyone's minds. So we've got the candidates to commit to fixing it first. Uh, and I think moving forward, our next step is really going to be making sure that they continue to talk about it on the campaign trail, because I do think this is going to be a potent, uh, wedge issue for their general election. Uh, and that's something that maybe we'll talk about on a future podcast episode. Uh, but it certainly seems in the general election, Donald Trump is going to continue to run on draining the swamp, uh, which is something he said in 2016, didn't do anything about it. In fact, just kind of populated the swamp since then. Uh, and so I think that the, the issue of reform is going to take on a real significance for any Democrat, whoever that Democrat is going to be in the general election. It's going to take on uh, a real salience for voters because Trump is going to talk about draining the swamp. So now is the time to get candidates ready and primed to effectively talk about it. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see as they move beyond New Hampshire into Nevada and South Carolina and Super Tuesday, uh, 
whether or not these issues are still talked about, which if we have anything to say about it, Jason, they certainly will be. Yeah, exactly. And and I want to, you know, again, encourage the media. I don't want to use the word blame here, but I want to encourage the media to talk about this issue separately from from other issues, right? And, and and make the connections that we've made and that hopefully some of the listeners on this podcast have made between, you know, the dysfunctional system, the polarization of the system, and the massive amounts of money flowing into the system, um, combined with lack of ranked choice voting, lack of easy access to voting, voter suppression, gerrymandering, right? All of the issues that we have recognized and on this podcast we've talked frequently about and make connections between the media and and the polling organizations really have not, you know, so I'm looking now as we speak at the Washington Post entrance and exit polls to find out what's on the mind of Democratic voters. And we just don't know, right, because they gave them four choices, which were health care, climate change, foreign policy and income inequality. And those are four good choices. I'm sure that people are thinking hard about those. Um, health care won in both Iowa and New Hampshire in terms of uh, the number one priority followed by climate change and income inequality, relatively close second and third in foreign policy uh, last. And but but that doesn't really tell us a lot about what we think, right, is also motivating voters. And indeed, some polls, the, the irony is none of these capture what was some of the most important issues to New Hampshire voters, which according to, I think, some local media in New Hampshire leading up, I don't think this was an exit poll, but leading up to the vote was actually the opioid crisis and drug abuse, right? And this is not captured. And of course, that um, the, the, the drug abuse problem has so much to do with the kind of industry capture that we talk about solving through democracy reform, right? The fact that people are sent to private prisons uh, instead of treatment centers, right? The fact that the drug industry is able to capture the FDA and make it so that change is really, really hard here. And and, um, all of those things are linked up with this thing that is really top of mind for voters. Um, And and also this anti-corruption you message that, again, it seems like on the ground is really resonating, but we don't even know. Because leading polling organizations aren't asking about it when they do these polls well, but but they're not asking about it. So that, again, to me, is a real loss. Right. I mean, the, the, the party and the media should really want to have as much information as possible about how to beat Trump what voters care about, what messages are resonating. I'm sure Michael Bloomberg with his massive spending and things like that has lots of great data that is private or that is not being shared. But as far as we know from what's being reported, um, uh, it, it feels like these messages are resonating, Adam, but it's just hard to get that evidence. And that's super frustrating. Um, yeah, I mean, at this point, all we have is anecdotal evidence. Uh, you know, one one really quick story. I went to an Elizabeth Warren uh, rally. I tried to go to as many different campaign events as possible while up there during uh, the First in the Nation primary. Uh, and her whole stump speech, it was about 35 minutes, let's say, the whole stump speech was about corruption. It was all about the way democracy prevents progress on, on issues. And so for the people in, in the rally, the people at that event, uh, everyone was nodding their head. Everyone got it. But, you know, I don't know if though you know voters if it was a sort of self selection right the people who were most likely to go to an Elizabeth Warren event were already uh, the most likely to understand that messaging or I have no idea how many of those people were first time goers to an Elizabeth Warren event probably at that point not many I don't know how many of those people were New Hampshire voters you know versus an out of state someone from Massachusetts for example who was there to to canvass before super uh, before uh, the Tuesday of of election day uh, so you know. Again, all I have to bolster your point, Jason, is anecdotal evidence to say that it is resonating. 
But um, the candidates certainly were talking about it, maybe not too much on solutions about how we actually break that influence. But you, you, you did hear it quite a bit, at least about kind of, you know, donors, super PACs, dark money groups. Uh, the, our messaging is getting into the, the narrative of the race. It's just uh, it would be great to have more data. I completely agree. Yeah. And the other point before we get into story time with Adam to, to make about you know, sort of the messaging is, again, you know, we had a really uh, highly watched debate. And, and I think one of the better debates of the cycle, that was the Friday before the New Hampshire primary, uh, Amy Klobuchar was widely viewed as performing quite well. Um, again, there were really no direct questions about democracy reform, right? There were a couple of passing mentions from some of the candidates talking about the way we fund campaigns, impacting some of these issues, um, as, as well as ensuring voting rights get protected. Biden, I believe, even threw in a mention to that. Um, but it's, it's again, it's sort of not getting that big push. We just keep hearing about Medicare for all, right? The, the candidates just keep going after each other about Medicare for all and some want it and some want to keep your private insurance. And I, you know, that needs to be articulated. I, I understand it's top of mind for voters, though that tends to be a repetitive discussion at every debate, but it would just be really, really nice and, and really a public service to also continue to get candidates on the record about these issues, because when they do, um, I do think it's one area as well, Adam, where, like you said, that is where in that kind of setting, they can not just criticize the system, but they can put forward proactive solutions. Right? Andrew Yang has has in some ways been most forceful about this. He's no longer in the race, but uh, at a debate where you you can flesh this out exactly what happened here, Adam, but he, he mentioned the solutions here, right? He mentioned democracy dollars and he went into some detail about how in Seattle, citizens get uh, funding for elections and they can publicly fund elections so that candidates need not rely on only wealthy donors and corporate interests and what that does to the system, what that does to unlock, you know, running a campaign. I, I don't like to use the word grassroots necessarily because that, you know, it's not clear to me what that term uh, really means. And it's also not clear to me that that's right, right? We want a campaign that is every kind of route. It is based on every citizen, based on the concerns of every citizen. And that is what this system does. And Yang does a good job of exploring that. And so having that in the media, having that uh, discussion in a debate about problems and solutions and the way it impacts policy, the way it impacts our political system and polarization, um, and, and the way it makes politics more substantive and not just sport to be played out on Fox News and CNN and MSNBC, those are critical. Um, but it's, it's really hard for the candidates to, to get that messaging without the, the, the opportunities to do so in, in important forums. OK, but Adam, you wanted to tell a couple of stories before we 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 make sure that Tom Perez is listening and give suggestions for the 2024 uh, primaries from a democracy perspective. So, uh, Jason, I think that you really hit on a critical point here, which is we, we've reached a certain level of salience, and I know I said this earlier in, in this episode, of the money in politics and these process issues corrupting our democracy, that the reason we can't get healthcare reform is because of you know the big uh, hospital associations or the insurance companies. You know That has really taken hold. The real thing that has yet to take hold is the solutions aspect. And so one of the reasons, Jason, that we decided that I should go up there uh, to New Hampshire during in the week before the primary is because New Hampshire, the week before the primary, is a circus. It is insane. Uh, essentially, all the candidates are there. All the media organizations are there, international press, uh, domestic press, 
CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, uh, everybody in surrounding states, everyone in states as far away as California, everybody is there in this small little state in the Northeast uh, right before the election. And so I wanted to go there to get a sense not only of what people were talking about, to, but to actually influence the debate in whatever capacity that I could. Uh, and, and I'm happy to report that I, I think I succeeded in, in that respect. Um, so I have, a, I have a couple of stories for you, Jason, and for our listeners that you know gave me a, a sense of, of not only hope for the future, but also uh, hope in the possibility for us all to to force these candidates to talk about democracy in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Uh, so I think one of the coolest stories, uh, Jason, was uh, a, a colleague of ours, uh, Olivia Zink, was invited. She's with Open Democracy, uh, which is one of the, probably it's actually the grassroots democracy group in New Hampshire that's done amazing work, helped us with the fight for ranked choice voting in New Hampshire and has been pushing democracy dollars there. Uh, she was invited to attend the CNN town hall uh, on the first night, I believe it was the Wednesday, uh, that had Joe Biden, Andrew Yang, Elizabeth Warren, and uh, Tom Steyer. And we sat in the very front row with the CNN cameras right there. And, uh, you know, the candidates would come out and talk to the people in the front row. And uh, the only candidate that I actually got to speak to in the middle of a live break, it was, you know, we had a three-minute break in between the, the live TV, was Andrew Yang. And so I said to Andrew Yang, um, I said, hey, you know, Mr. Yang, remember me? We put on the event, the really successful event with you, with Larry Lessig in, in about April 2019 in New Hampshire on Democracy Forum. And of course, he remembered. He remembered that event. He remembered me. He was, his eyes lit up and he was very excited because, again, he did extremely well, Jason, during that town hall. It was a really thoughtful discussion with Larry. Um, and I, I asked him, I said, you know, you're doing great, but can you do me a solid? Can you do me a favor? We're really having trouble getting uh, the solutions to our democracy crisis onto the national stage. Can you do me a solid and mention your democracy dollars plan uh, in the next segment? The next, you know, it takes some question that they're going to ask you, the moderator is going to ask you, and see if you can turn it into something about, uh, you know, our broken democracy and public financing. And he said, I'll see what I can do. And Jason, I know you were watching this too. And I think it was the next question or maybe the second question of that next live segment. It was a question about guns. And he turned that question really, really thoughtfully and well done from how to regulate the sale of guns and how to prevent gun violence. And he said that's that's a critical point. But what's also critical is changing the influence that the gun manufacturers and the NRA have in our political system. And he pivoted to the way to do this is through public financing of elections. And that is why I, Andrew Yang, have proposed uh, democracy dollars. Um, and now, Jason, as if anyone who's been keeping track of our POTUS One uh, webpage knows that Yang's not the only one to support uh, this critical reform of democracy vouchers. Bernie Sanders supports it. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard has indicated support. Tom Steyer has as well. And so has Bill Wells, the Republican. But Yang did, you know, he was the earliest person to endorse this uh, critical reform. And I thought he did an excellent job. And he came up to me after the fact and said, look, I got you. You're, you, you, you got your wish. I hope that was good. And I said to him, you know, you did, you did a real service to this movement today uh, because I don't know the number of people who watched that, uh, that town hall, Jason, but it doesn't matter, right? Every time we can get a politician to talk about the solution, not just the problem, because again, we, we've made progress on articulating the framing of the problem. You know, Larry Lessig has done more than most to get this, you know, he, he's critical in this effort to to really reshape the narrative. I mean, what you know, the work that Larry and, and so many others have done. Uh, but we haven't quite gotten to the point where the issue or the solutions to the problem are as salient as the problem itself. 
So every time we push a presidential candidate to use their bully pulpit for this purpose is a remarkable success. And so I think that was a really good moment uh, in the New Hampshire cycle. Yeah, no, me, me too. That I, I was watching from, uh, you know, my home on TV, like many others, that, that Yang moment and thought it was really good. And it was great to know that you were there pushing them. And, and that's part of the message, too. You know, uh, folks listening, it matters, right? When you see candidates at candidate events, ask them, tweet at them, Instagram message them, however people interact these days, right? That That is really critical. And I did think that it was really um, a nice answer and nice way of connecting up the solution. Okay. Speaking of solutions, before 2024 solutions, you wanted to drop a couple of other uh, stories before we turn to 2024? Yes, a couple a couple quick ones. Uh, here's another one with a candidate that was a little less uh, cordial, but I think critical nonetheless. I went to, as I was saying, the Elizabeth Warren rally. Uh, I believe it was uh, a couple days before the election. And uh, she was talking about, she framed her whole event around her, you know, the, the framing of corruption and her pl- her anti-corruption plan to unrig our democracy. And she listed three things. Uh, and I, I believe it was something like a- ending lobbying or the influence of lobbyists requiring uh, tax returns be released for presidential candidates and, and some sort of other ethics uh, platform or provision. And uh, I was a little frustrated in that moment because, as you know, Jason, reform without public financing of elections, anything calling itself an anti-corruption platform without public financing of elections uh, isn't real reform. It's not enough. It's not enough to democratize political financing, to make it so that that anybody, regardless of wealth, can get into the political process and have an influence on politics and, and, and who's a viable candidate. And, and keep in mind, I should say that that public financing is in Warren's plan. So this isn't knocking her plan, but it's knocking the the way she was framing it in front of, um, you know, voters. I just wanted her to say public financing. So Jason, I hope you don't mind. I interrupted her and I yelled, what about public financing? And she looked at me, took a second and said, of course I support public financing. And then she said, I can't, couldn't list everything, but of course I support public financing. Now, some might quibble that maybe I shouldn't have done that. But again, getting to the point of, of course, she supports public financing. She recognizes that this is critical, that changing the way campaigns are financed is critical to democratizing influence. So that was just a moment where, where, where all the cameras were watching her, where all the cameras were picking up and broadcasting her stream. I just wanted some reference to public financing that we believe is so critically important to reforming our democracy. And so now whoever was watching that live stream, uh, maybe they were curious of who is this guy and why was he interrupting Warren on something like public financing? So maybe we generated some Google search results. But certainly for the folks who were there, now they know that, of course, Warren supports public financing and that it's a critical reform. Uh, At this point, Jason, every leading candidates supports public financing. What model they support is a different story. Yep. Warren supports a matching system. But again, just it's it's so critical for us to get the candidates to talk about the solutions because it's going to be such an uphill fight if we're in a situation in 2021 where the Senate, House, and, and the presidency is occupied by uh, pro-reform politicians. It's going to be an uphill fight. The fight isn't over by just electing politicians. We're going to have to work so hard to get it passed. So it's critical that we start priming voters hearing the concept of, you know, public funding of elections so that they understand what that is, that they have a signal that, you know, we're signaling in a positive direction now so that when the political landscape is more favorable to us, uh, it's going to be much easier to rally these people to fight for this reform when it's in the halls of Congress, when it's being considered. That's a very important moment for me. Because, you know, the Warren fan base, in my view at least, and again, I don't necessarily have polling on this, would be uh, a clear 
uh, constituency to mobilize when push comes to shove and, you know, the political landscape is different. And we need to mobilize everyone we can to go to D.C. in favor of the new H.R. 1 or the new POTUS 1. Uh, we're going to need people in the streets then to push and lobby and call. And so we need to start that priming the, that electorate now. Uh, okay, so one, one more quick story, Jason. Uh, and so I was going, I was talking to some voters, and this is, this is a, a story about how reforms make a real impact on people's daily or let's say, on people's experience in election, that how it actually opens up the political process. So New Hampshire for a very long time has had same-day registration, a reform, Jason, that you and I and Equal Citizens, we love it. Basically, it's as simple as it sounds, that instead of having a deadline to register, like in Massachusetts, we have a 20-day voter registration deadline. So if it's 19 days before the election and you're not registered, too bad, you can't vote in it. Uh, it's, it's a real, uh, it disenfranchises a lot of a lot of people. In fact, when I first moved to Massachusetts, I almost missed that deadline. And again, Jason, I do democracy policy for a living. I do it for a living and I almost missed that deadline. So New Hampshire has same day registration. You can go to the polls if you're not registered or if you've moved, you can re-register or register for the first time there at your polling location. So it's a remarkable form. The the studies show that it increases um, participation by I think about three plus percent, three to seven, I think percent. I'd have to fact check that. And New Hampshire's has it. And so when I was talking to somebody, believe it or not, they didn't know that the primary, this was on the Monday before the election, before the Tuesday, so it was the day before the election. And this young woman, say, let's say no more than 35, uh, did not know the election was the following day. And she and her husband, and they had a, a you know, not a newborn, but a very young child, no more than, let's say, one or two years old. And they were kind of shocked. And they had just moved to New Hampshire from Massachusetts. And they didn't know the primary was the next day. And I spoke to them for a bit and they said they wanted to vote. And I said, lucky for you, New Hampshire has same day registration that you can just go to the poll. The poll was down the street, about two blocks away. You can go there when you're available. And as long as the poll's not closed, go there, register to vote, tell them you're not registered. And then you just cast your ballot. And she, her eyes lit up and said, that's fantastic. In other words, this is a, a family that would not have been able to participate in our elections had we not had the election rules favor the voter instead of entrenched interests or, you know, whomever else. But this is clearly a moment where the election laws favored the people. And as a result, it increased participation from at least one person. I can only report on one person who voted because of it. And I actually will say that on, I believe it was uh, UNH's campus in, I believe, Durham, New Hampshire, there were reports of just hundreds of students registering for the first time using same-day registration. So this this is a, a clear solution to voter suppression that we can enact, not just in states across, but we need a federal law to enact this. And most presidential candidates want it. But here's just more evidence of the ways in which the issues that we're fighting for, the, the actual concrete policies uh, work in practice successfully, and how it can open the door to politics for people who have never engaged before. So for me, actually, of everything I said, that story gives me the most hope. Because again, as, as I say often to, when talking about democracy policy, the solutions here are not rocket science. We know exactly what we need to do to open up our democracy to ensure that everyone is an equal citizen. And this just was clear proof that, yeah, that's right. 
if we enact same-day registration, if we enact automatic voter registration, if we enact public financing, if we limit voter purges, if we pass independent registering commissions to end gerrymandering, these are all very common sense solutions that we know will work to democratize influence and to democratize our elections. Yeah. Uh, and, and for me, that's the takeaway here is that, you know, no matter how kind of bleak the situation in political landscape gets, I know that we can fix the system by passing these common sense reforms. Yeah, no, I, it, it's a great story and, and a great note to end the recap on as we look forward to 2024 and enter our Dear Tom Perez segment. Because, Adam, as much hope as you had, and it's great that New Hampshire has a primary with same-day registration, and indeed they also have a system where on the spot, it's not an open primary, but on the spot you can also register for a particular party and so choose whether you want to vote in the Democratic or Republican or other parties' primary, which is also another great feature that, that is really pro-democracy and, as you said, favors the voter. Um, but, but, Adam, you and I have come to think that, that the current just primary calendar and primary system doesn't necessarily favor the voter. And in particular, having Iowa and New Hampshire be the two marquee slots to start off every nominating season um, have some real defects, right? I mean, first of all, the demographics of those states do not match the demographics of America and especially of the Democratic Party, right? The Democratic Party, the last numbers I saw were over 40% non-white. And both New Hampshire and Iowa are what well over 90, 95% even white voters. Uh, there, uh, you know, the, the balance between rural and urban voters is, uh, quite drastically different than in the democratic party generally, and indeed in, and in America, and then just having the system, right? They are small states, they are less urban, and then starting things off with a caucus where you have to spend hours of time, you know, on a Monday evening at 8 PM, that clearly is going to favor certain types of people who are engaged in the process, willing to give that time, have the child care if they have children, right? Don't work nights, as opposed to being able to vote by mail or vote however you wish, right? Just the pure mechanism of how the Iowa caucus works is, is really not capturing the full uh, citizen activism and, and citizen voice that we want. So, and as you said, you know, we probably gave Iowa an F and... New Hampshire somewhere in the B range in terms of democracy scorecard. And that's not what we want from our first two democratic acts of a nominating contest. So Adam, you and I kicked around some suggestions that that uh, of how we were talking about it. And one thing that we wanted to throw out there for people, and if people have feedback, feel free to email info at equalcitizens.us. But one thing that we, you know, we want to emphasize, well, we, we really want to capture two things with our the, the Equal Citizens new nominating contest uh, in 2024, right? We, we want to make the voting public somewhat more representative of the party and America at large, right? We wanted so that the nominating contest doesn't shift from like one group having outsized power uh, and then finally permits other groups to. That's not uh, that's not consistent with the principle of equal citizenship that we espouse here. So principle one is whatever happens sort of in the early contest should should much better mimic the, the, the demographics and interests and socioeconomic status of voters in the U.S. And then two is we should really have pro-democracy states, right? Make have states where it's easy to vote and easy to get out and vote and easy to capture lots of information 
from lots of different voters. We want people to be enthusiastic and we want that enthusiasm to be reflected from beginning to the end and and to resonate through to the general election, right? So those are the kind of two principles. So one thing that that is a combination of some things that I'd read and some things we were thinking about, Adam, is that the early primary should be like four different states in four different regions, and they should be picked based on a combination of factors like what their demographics are, what their voter turnout in the uh, last election was, and in particular, including general election, how they overperformed their de- their polls and sort of their destiny to indicate how healthy the state party is. Um, and then something that I thought of since we last talked about it, but we should throw out there is we should ensure that at least one of the states uses ranked choice voting, right? We should, at le- and um, we should encourage all those four states as part of the grade to be in a rage in terms of democracy, right? Those states should have same day voter registration. They should have uh, the ability on the same day to uh, change your registration. They should have early voting and mail-in voting to make sure we're capturing the full electorate. Um, And at least one of those early states should have ranked choice voting. We just need that information, especially early in the process. So what do you think of that suggestion, Adam? Yeah, I mean, I'm very intrigued by that. These are all somewhat unformed, Jason, I think you'd concede that we're open to to whatever people have uh, want to suggest. But I think it's very clear that the the current nominating procedure is just unacceptable and anti-democratic. I, I also just want to note, Jason, that, you know, Iowa has at this point the most restrictive felon disenfranchisement laws, uh, and that carries over into the Democratic primary. In other words, it's incredibly regressive on that, you know, democracy scorecard. And, and yet that has such such influence over who the next democratic president is. And I also should say that the, the errors and the, the problems in the Iowa caucus are so bad that they still haven't even declared a winner. So no more caucuses ever. No mas. Uh, th- that's, that's it. I will uh, say, okay, can I, can I defend caucuses slightly? I do like the idea in some form. I'm not sure if, if, if we should use, uh, uh, caucuses in the early states as having such outsized importance. But I do like the idea of having citizens come together and actually discuss what's going on in the race, discuss the state of democracy, discuss who their preferences are, right? Obviously, I think when it comes to voting, we agree that the so-called Australian ballot, which is the secret ballot that people get to go to and make their choice free of coercion and intimidation, is the way to go. But I think there's room in the process, especially considering how little affect the the party itself has anymore, right? The party leaders, of course, for most of American history, just picked the nominees themselves based on, you know, what happened in the proverbial smoky back rooms. Now that process has been thrown to the voters. Well, that's fine. But I don't think it's crazy to have some sort of forum and some sort of incentive for those voters to discuss it, to have town halls, to have local meetings, to discuss it with their communities. No, I mean, I understand why we don't want caucuses to lead out. But 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 do you see any role for that kind of discussion, Adam? I, I see a role for it only if we can address the accessibility issues. Only if, if we can really design a system with robust early voting, uh, robust re- re- uh, reporting procedures. And in other words, I can be convinced, but I just have to, the, the, in other words, the, what outweighs that right now, in my mind, is accessibility and making sure that uh, it goes according to plan. But in terms of the the values of deliberation and you know, trying to convince other people, I, there are many ways we can bring that into the electoral process. So I, I, I'm not necessarily kind of poo-pooing it 
in and of itself in terms of the, the value that the caucuses add. Just from my, my point of view, I just want to make sure that the accessibility is the is the number one yeah. um, to our democracy. But I, I'm willing to have that discussion. I'm let's let's uh, maybe we'll have that uh, see if we can get someone on who's an expert on caucuses Indeed. in another podcast episode. So a couple of things. I also do want to say I've read a couple of interesting articles about potential states that should go first. I, I've been intrigued by Georgia, um, if Georgia was one of kind of the first four. But I, I will say that I think the key in my mind of what would make a, a reform of the primary system interesting is if it was randomized every four years. In other words, you couldn't have a John Delaney type who in in the beginning of 2017 uh, basically moves to Iowa because you know Iowa's first. In other words, if you can randomize it a bit to give it to rotate the the whatever category of the the first four will be on the same day, uh, you, know, you can't really embed in the same kind of way that you have to wait, let's say a year, or a year and a half out. I don't know when they would announce, but there's there's something interesting, intriguing to me just on on first glance upon you know a series of four random states of uh, assuring you know ensuring that each of the four states meets a certain level of diversity. Uh, so it's not like you have Montana, Wyoming. South Dakota, North Dakota, all randomly selected, but they're all the first four. Like that's unacceptable. You couldn't have that. And I also want to say one more thing about ranked choice voting, which I, I agree with you. I think ranked choice voting should absolutely be used to get more information. But I, but the one thing that I think the media has just failed, and this is this is a situation where the media has the media wants the rank. They're trying to make the ranked choice voting data happen without ranked choice voting. In other words, there have been a bunch of these. Uh, graphics on, I, I don't know if it was CNN or MSNBC, of, of comparing the vote for Warren and Sanders and adding that up to about 35, 40%, and the other three, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, and Joe Biden, uh, or and Michael Bloomberg, maybe, I don't remember exactly, but you know, saying that, look, the moderate vote outweighs the left wing of the party if you add them all up. But if there's anything we know from the little bit of ranked choice voting data, the second preferences that we have from public polling, is that voters don't actually follow any the ideological lanes that we ascribe to them. We, you know, that we they don't follow the lanes that we assign them. And I think that's why ranked choice voting is so important because because what we're saying is not that Sanders would not have won New Hampshire, for example. We're saying we don't know. Because actually, the number one choice for Joe Biden voters is Sanders. Their second choice is Sanders, not Pete Buttigieg. Likewise, I don't know if Elizabeth Warren voters, I'd have to look at the polling, would necessarily go to Sanders. Some of them might have gone to Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar. We just don't know. And that's why the ranked choice voting is so important and why this is not a, a just, a, oh, well, this is, you know, this benefits one side of the Democratic Party more than the other. No, because actually, one, the polls don't show that. The polls show voters are, are much less ideologically sorted in terms of like, uh, you know, in terms of lanes, moderate to kind of, you know, left wing. And two, we also have no idea how this would change the campaign process. In other words, the real difference of ranked choice voting, which I wanted to highlight, is uh, it would force you to try and go to the, you know, for volunteers and canvassers to go to the doors of, you know, adamant supporters of another candidate. In other words, if you saw in New Hampshire a Joe Biden sign and you're with the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, under the current system, you would probably avoid that house because, well, you get one vote and that person's clearly going to vote for Joe Biden. But in a ranked choice voting, you'd be encouraged to go to that house and say, hey, you know, I see you have a Joe Biden sign there. That's great. That's fine. Uh, I'm with the Sanders campaign. But here's where you and I might agree. 
this is my this this is Sanders's vision for the future. Here, maybe there are some agreements, or maybe maybe that comparison's not doesn't work, or maybe between you know a, a Warren supporter and a Sanders supporter, whatever it is, uh, you have to find alliances, and I think that would greatly increase the the tone. It, it would make the tone of the election much more positive, and would really form and uh, and and um, I, I think foster. Uh, a stronger party in the process. And it would also make canvassing a lot more fun for those doing it because you wouldn't get people who say, you know, oh, like I already have my candidate, get off my, get off my property. You might actually begin to have a substantive conversation about issues that you align with. Yeah, yeah. And and we should add uh, in terms of other reforms, you know, to the extent that people are saying, well, if you want the vote to reflect America, why not have just a 50 state? Why not have a national primary? I think that the recent elections show why that's not viable. Forget the money aspect and forget, um, you know, the idea of campaigning uh, initially in 50 states. Of course, the eventual nominee doesn't even campaign in 50 states because we have an electoral college that plays swing states uh, with much more importance. But um, I think that the answer there is we just won't wouldn't have a nominee. Right. I mean, we the the we need staged primaries in part to see what candidates are viable and which ones aren't so that later primary goers have fewer choices that have already been vetted, right, and taken through the funnel. Because if we had a nationwide primary right now, the odds are, Adam, that no one would get more than 30% of the vote. So there would be a contested primary or a contested convention, I should say, in essentially every time. And that's not what we want either, right? We want actual information. We want a campaign that results in a candidate that lots of people in the party are willing to support, that they are energized for going into the general election in lots of diverse geographic areas. And sadly, Adam, I think that we have to give the DNC and the primary process, you know, probably a D plus in terms of how they're thinking about that right now. Um, And uh, they have changed it, right? I mean, South Carolina and Nevada have much more importance in the last couple of cycles than they have before. But nonetheless, it's still uh, really, really lacking from a democracy perspective and from an equality of citizenship perspective. Okay, so that's our memo to the DNC and Tom Perez. More to come later uh, on that. But in the meantime, Adam, I think that was a really good recap of where we are. Looking forward to not only 2020 election, but 2024. And uh, we will be back soon with more recaps. In the meantime, you can find us at equalcitizens.us slash another way and email any comments, info at equalcitizens.us. Adam, see you soon. Talk to you soon, Jason. <laughs>